Well, so similarly to me finding out about falconry from a library book, I also stumbled upon this old black and white photo of a guy on a mountain on horseback covered in furs holding a huge golden eagle with a, a fox skin tethered to the behind the the horse saddle and just thinking like oh my god that that's a real photo that looks like something out of a fantasy novel does that actually happen and at that time you could put in mongolian eagle falconry into google and nothing would come up you know i was starved for information about it and i lucked out that guy, Steve Bodio, whose book I read that got me hooked on falconry, he was writing, he was one of the first Western falconers to go to Mongolia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he was writing um, a book about that. And I wrote him a letter, like an actual like snail mail letter. And he wrote me back and he gave me tons of useful information, his, the, the contact information for his guide in Mongolia, what he saw there. He sent me a copy of his manuscript. So he was super helpful in orienting me to the place and getting some context. Um, I, when I was in high school, so I, th this interest just grew and grew. And of course, in the United States, we have a rich history of say grouse hawking, but no eagle falconry. So I couldn't even find an eagle falconer in the US to talk to. There was just nothing. Um, <clears throat> so I, well, I spent some time in Scotland, which was really helpful because the UK does have a really nice tradition of eagles. But I, my super kind dad, so my parents never have understood this, but they've always supported me, which I just can't thank them enough. Uh, so my dad took me to Mongolia um, when I was uh, my last year of high school. So when I was 18. Wow. And cool dad. we went there for, yeah, it was, it was so nice of him because it was winter, freezing. He's not into birds. He doesn't want to freeze in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia. He just did it because I was so into it. So I was able to visit some eagle hunters, we spent two weeks out there, had a great time. You can't really see a whole lot in two weeks, but it was just enough of a foundation uh, for me to start making plans to go back long-term. And <clears throat> I would, I, I applied for, when I was about to graduate university, I applied for funding to go live in Mongolia for a year to do to apprentice to an eagle falconer uh, and one hot piece of advice I can give to anybody looking for funding particularly from Fulbright this organization is that if you pick a country nobody else wants to go to there's not a whole lot of competition <laughs> I think there were there were eight applications for Mongolia and they had five awards, so it, it was high odds. <laughs> but they funded me to go back for a year. And so through, that was in 2009. So through Steve's help and the friends I made on the ground with my dad, I was able to set that up. Um, and so my idea was I wanted to in anthropology, they call it participant observation, but I wanted to do everything that an apprentice eagle hunter does. So 
trap my own bird, train it, hunt foxes with it, release it, do the full cycle and can get a little complicated. So the very traditional eagle falconry in Mongolia is they use wild trap passage birds. And with golden eagles, I use the word passage more loosely. So I mean, one, two, three, maybe four years old, but an immature golden eagle at any rate. And they trap them. So according to, to those Kazakhs, the golden eagles migrate from Siberia, bottleneck through Western Mongolia, through the Altai, as they travel to China. So they try to catch, they try to trap these passage birds when they come through Mongolia every October. So <clears throat> I was able to, I visited, I hired a, uh, a guide and a driver and we visited a lot of different eagle hunters. So I was able to meet one that I really clicked with, got along with. He had daughters that were my age that helped that I, so I could chat to them too. And he agreed to help me trap an eagle and, and, and hunt with it in the, in the traditional way that his family always had. I, which I had a, my gosh, it's a whole story in itself. Cliff Notes is we trapped a second year golden and um, we ended up catching 10 foxes over a bunch of heroin um, and it was great. But one thing I have noticed is in the media, they often portray people taking ISs out of the nest. Okay. And that's something that irks me because in my view, that has been spurred by the festival, which the festival was started to bring tourism to Western Mongolia, which is one of the main sources of the GDP there. It's huge. It brings a lot of income to families. But those Ayas Goldens are, of course, much more tolerant of crowds and cameras and can basically do a bird show at this festival but they're not good for hunting in the traditional sense yeah. so tourism itself has changed that area but if you get away from Olgi which is the provincial capital where the festival is really out in the in the boonies as we'd say that's where the passage eagle falconry and the really traditional um uh, tradition survives because they also they it's really beautiful they feel so they'll trap a passage eagle and they'll fly it for some number of years depending on how how good of a hunter the eagle is how well it clicks with the eagle falconer say one to six seven years but after you start getting into five six seven years there's big social pressure to release that eagle especially if it was a good hunter because they want that eagle to go on and pass on its genes and make more good eagles for future generations of eagle hunters to fly and i was quite reading um, watson's book on eagles in the uk yeah he found that if an eagle survives to maturity the average lifespan is something like 32 years it's really high so i love this idea of these eagles in the Altai, if they have similar lifespans that, you know, young eagle has this odd detour for four or five years of its life where it hunts with an eagle hunter, an eagle falconer, and then it's released and it still has 25, 30 years where it's migrating from Siberia to China, living in the Altai, hunting foxes and marmots. And, you know, we're, we're that 
whole cultural tradition is just a strange part of that eagle's adolescence. I, I love that idea. I mean, there's there's so many things I need to, so many questions that are just moving <laughs> around in my brain. That that's wonderful. I mean, it's really interesting to hear um, firsthand experience because, as you said, yeah, if you'd have asked me, I you know I've looked at followed um, Mongolian falconry to some extent, but yeah, if someone had said to me, where do they get their eagles from, I'd have probably said, oh yeah, and I yes, they you know, and that's what the that's what what I suppose you see in the media. Um, clearly, it's you know it's 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 not true. But I'll just go back to sort of well, I won't go back to the very beginning. But I mean, I think we kind of glossed over it. But that's so. In when you went out there for your one year apprentice, how old were you? How old how old were you when you did that? So it was two thousand nine. I was um, I just. 22 or 23. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a big deal because Mon- I, I, again, I've never been to Mongolia, but so I'm just going off firsthand, you know, or sorry, what I've read and seen on, and it's remote. It, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, going to Australia for a backpack for a year backpacking or, you know, the, you know, this, this is a remote place and you're obviously a, a young woman going out how did you find how obviously from the two weeks that you experienced you obviously got a good reception you you enjoyed it what was it like when you yeah and and obviously you touched on going around families and eagle hunters to see who you clicked with which obviously that helps massively but what was it like but you must have been I'm assuming you were the first woman to go out there and say right I'm going to live out here for a year and and um, learn to be an eagle falconer how did that how did that work how did it go well it obviously went well you enjoyed it but yeah it's a big deal they definitely thought I was a very strange person (laughs) (laughs) yes so to be an eagle hunter in Mongolia you have to be a nomadic herder their falconry is intimately tied to the herding because you know you're herding in a really remote place you you're taking your goat, sheep, camels, horses to places where there's good grazing. And just in the act of doing that, you get to see what the wild eagles are up to, where they are. You see what foxes are doing and their habits. Because this isn't like, as you might imagine, difficult kind of falconry that takes a lot of orchestration. Especially in the winter, it's a very harsh landscape. And the area doesn't support that many foxes to begin with. So you really have to, they call it reading the white book of the steppe. You have to have great like tracking skills and intimate knowledge of the wild lives of these animals around you. But anyway, uh, so I was not in a village. I was spring and summer. They live in yurts. Yep. Uh, they call them gares uh, in yep. Mongolian. And then in the fall and winter, they live in these adobe type houses, um, both place where there's good grazing that time of year for their herd animals. And because the land isn't arable, there's no farming and it's really expensive for them to buy fruits and vegetables. So they get virtually everything they need from their animals. Uh, They eat every part of the animal because if you're that's one way to get all the vitamins and minerals you need is if you eat all the innards that you that other cultures might get from fruits and vegetables so it was it was fascinating 
I, I had anticipated it being difficult to get them to want to take me on as an apprentice, but really because being a nomadic herder is such a difficult lifestyle, most of their kids are going to the cities and establishing their lives in the cities, getting jobs in the cities. So I felt that they were just happy to pass on their tradition to anyone, even a weird you know, <laughs> white girl from America. Yeah. So, so they were very welcoming. Another thing I like about their falconry is it's very much a meritocracy. It's not like say medieval falconry in Europe where you had to be a part of the aristocracy, yep. you know, famously to have access to certain species. Out there, it's truly believed if you have it inside you to want to interact with these birds of prey, they're going to give you a shot. You, know, you should be able to do it. <clears throat> so I enjoyed that. Um, but it's, it is a very harsh lifestyle. Uh, it's not, the weather isn't too bad until December and that's when the brutal cold hits. So the way that they survive out there is every fall in preparation for the winter, they'll slaughter 15 to 20 goats and sheep and one horse, usually a horse that's not good for riding or, you know, they don't want its genes necessarily passed yeah. on. So it's this big celebration to prepare meat for the upcoming winter. And yeah, we had a whole <laughs> free, whole little separate adobe house full of all this meat and all the, everything had a purpose. It's really quite ingenious how, you know, the, each organ they would use for a certain kind of dish or ailment or, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an amazing culture. One of the few true nomadic societies left, um, in Kazakhstan proper, Stalin forcibly settled the nomads and really did his best to stamp out falconry, which he saw as bourgeois. And Mongolia was protected by the Altai and nobody was that interested in that region. So it escaped relatively unscathed, which is why we see this really traditional form of falconry persist. And I spent some time in Kazakhstan, but really what you see in Kazakhstan now are young people trying to bring back a tradition rather than having continued it unbroken. I'll stop there for now. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It, on, and honestly, Lauren, there's, there's so many things, so many questions that buzz around in my, my head. Um, when you, two, two things that came into my mind, well, three questions actually, but probably we'll get stuck on the first one. Um, but, Talking about the um, the actual falconry that you're participating in, it, it really, I'm jealous and I'm not even, I was never, as I mentioned earlier, I was never a big falconer. It, do you struggle with, well, I think if you're a British falconer, you probably would, but in America, do you struggle now with sometimes with the, with the falconry that you practice, that it's not as true as, as what you experienced out in Mongolia or does, do you try and do you think it actually makes you a better falconer because you are trying to recreate that you know the being as as true to falconry as you possibly can which clearly the mongolians and the kazakhs are they are because it's life and death essentially falconry for them 
I'm so glad I learned from them because I use so many of their techniques in my Eagle Falconry in the US. I've also noticed, so of course, I'm, I'm not the only one, many European falconers, Eagle Falconers have gone to that region and I've also noticed some techniques incorporated. So it's, their falconry is incredible in Mongolia, but it is very physically demanding to a high degree. So the way logistically that their falconry works, so there's no, hairs are really difficult to come by and they go underground and in crevasses a lot and they're really hard to get a clean flight on. So foxes are primarily what you're hunting. The wild eagles definitely hunt them. Uh, nests show lots of fox parts, big part of their diet. So what you do is ideally you're on horseback and you ride to the top of the mountain and then you've got a buddy that's going to ride his horse through the valley below you, make a lot of noise, see if he can scare up a fox. No, there's no close flights. These foxes are super savvy. Whenever I have seen one flushed, it's this rust colored spot scooting along far in the distance. And this is why you need a passage eagle. They are difficult long distance flights. And that's why you're on the mountaintop. So as long as you can have some kind of a height advantage, the eagle's got a shot. And the foxes will always try to run uphill. So of course, as soon as the fox gets above the eagle, it's game over. So it's, it's and because that area can't support that many foxes, if you're out hunting all day, and even if it's a great spot, you might only get one to three slips three would be a three opportunities would be a banner day so it's you're out there sunrise to sunset and you're living for those 30 seconds of action where things happen and the other thing i think some falconers will uh sympathize with this that makes it really hard that, that stressed me out i got a little better at it but because of the distances involved so you're sitting at the mountaintop and you might take the hood off your eagle is you have to judge in that split second where when they want to, to go, whether it's actually a fox out there that you can't see or whether they might just want to go and kind of hang out, you know, go fly off. Yeah. So it's this, it's, oh my gosh, it's a split second decision because if it is a fox that you just can't quite see, that might be the only one that you see all day yeah. but if it's not then you might have to chase your eagle for a half hour down the mountain as you go and get her back so it's man it's a it's a thing when it works though what i love about it when it all comes together it's like waiting on from a different perspective because the distances are so big and you've usually got this height advantage you're seeing an eagle stoop dramatically from above so it's beautiful in that way. And they're so, the fox is really a, a great quarry for them. The foxes will do all kinds of hair-like maneuvers to get, to get away. And they usually do, of course. Um, and then not to get too much off topic, but I did quickly want to say, like the IS eagles being more of a tourist thing and a myth, wolf hunting, totally a myth. Another thing that irks me, uh, doesn't actually happen in so I spent two years there collectively yep. and during that time I only saw wolves twice and the eagles wanted nothing to do with them they're heavily persecuted so they're 
they do everything they can to avoid human presence and anything being near any human settlement. And eagles, as we know, are really intelligent. These passage eagles are not keen to try to grab a huge animal that can defend itself like a wolf. So that's, that's just some sensationalism that the media likes to repeat because it sounds cool, but the reality is it doesn't actually happen. But fox hunting is incredible anyway. There's no need to really exaggerate it. Well, um, but yeah, so. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say for people listening in, obviously, that don't know a great deal about, about falconry and, um, and obviously the, the, the hunting um, of, of the foxes out in, in Mongolia. What's the value of a fox then to, so you catch a fox with your golden eagle. What's the value of that fox to a family, to an eagle falconer? It used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, they could sell the fox pelt for a fair amount of money yep. and it would aid in the family's income. The, the price on fox pelts has really dropped dramatically. So now it's purely, it, they make clothing out of them. Uh, so of course, warm winter clothing. And you have probably seen the famous eagle hunter's hat. It's mm -hmm. called a, a bushbok tamak. And it's made purely out of the front arm fur of the foxes. The reason being that's supposedly the softest fur. And it takes quite a few front arms to make a whole hat. So it's a status symbol in that if you have one says, hey, I have caught enough foxes to yeah. make this. But truly the reason I, I believe that I have seen that there are eagle hunters now it's really no financial gain from the pelts. It's it's perpetuating a tradition that they're very proud of. It's fascinating. And uh, what into going going to the meat aspect of it though, and and living out there and and using the the whole animal. Did 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 that make from you from a personal point of view? Did that make you change the way you looked at? life and uh, this don't mean this to be a really deep question but obviously we live in a very consumer driven world where you know everything's only a click away or a you know whatever you need if you look at you know in a western world certainly from you, you yeah if you're you've got you're lucky enough then then that's how you live your life um did that has any of that sort of impacted your life? Obviously, falconry has impacted it massively, but the fact that they literally use everything and they don't waste a thing. It did. <clears throat> it made me realize also how most cultures in history have been monocultures with food. They only eat a few things and how lucky we are to literally have access to food from South America or Australia or you know, any, any fruit that tickles our fancy. Yeah. So my diet there was almost, your diet's really 90% mutton. Yep. So it's the same thing. And I, I started really to eat just because my body needed it for the cold and all the calories you're expending, but there's not really any flavoring that they do. So it's, it, it was an odd experience for me because I, I, I ate what we had and you know, the area really only truly supports goats and sheep and um, 
and I ate because I had to. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a pleasurable thing. Like it is, yeah. like it can be here. But having said that, they they make food really is a big part of their culture. And for anybody that does go to Mongolia, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give is to actually eat the food. It it means a lot to them if you make the effort to eat something that might be unappealing to you in your culture. Um, so uh, as an example, it's considered really rude there to give a piece, a lean piece of meat to somebody. It's really, <clears throat> it's kind and it's, it's honorable to give someone a super fatty piece of meat, even if it's mostly fat. So like I'd be out there and they might hand me this huge blob of fat with like a little sliver of meat on it. And that's them telling me like, oh, we, we're honoring you. <laughs> I'm looking at this like, oh my God, I can't. How am I supposed to eat this? But if you just try it, they, that was one of the, the most effective, quickest way for me to bond uh, with them where they started accepting me. Uh, but it, it puts it in perspective for sure. The access that we have and how wasteful we can be. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I've experienced that firsthand with visiting the Philippines and living out with a remote community mm. um, out there. And they couldn't, first of all, they couldn't do enough for you to make you, or myself and my friend, to make us welcome. The food, like I'm not a very good cook, you know, get it out the freezer, chuck it in the oven and I might still burn it. The food, you know, even if it was basic pork, you know, uh, rice, it was unbelievable. It was, you know, and I'm not saying that because we were out there and we were hungry, so we'd eat anything. It really was. And and I think you find that with a lot of indigenous, oh, I, I, watching TV and listening to you. And um, I think you probably find that with a lot of indigenous communities is, is um, yeah, they, they know how to connect with people. Um, and I think if you connect with them, my experience is that you're all the richer for it, really. Um, so that's 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 really nice to really nice to hear. Now I wanted to ask you about going back to the eagles. <clears throat> um, you're talking about the the sort of the ages and and uh, trapping them and then releasing them, um, and obviously touching on how you, they want them to. Be, obviously, they want to improve. Well, they know that the the stronger eagles are going to improve the gene pool. Is there any conservation work? Oh, obviously, that's conservation in itself. But is there any monitoring of that bit taking place or is it purely just based that you know of or is it purely just based on you they know that these eagles are going to survive because they've survived so far and they're successful hunters do you know of any work being done i know of some recent work which i was really excited to see um for anyone that's a member of the raptor research foundation i think it was 2019 there's a paper by um, David Ellis and uh, Nimba Bayatvar okay. that had that surveyed golden eagles in the Altai Mountains of Mongolia, and I think it's really hard to know numbers, but there's roughly 300 eagle hunters in the region, eagle falconers. So I think the traditional eagle falconry is very sustainable. I do worry a little bit with 
taking Ayas's from the nest for, for the festival, I don't, it's hard, I don't know how many are taken and it's in a region, again, that doesn't support that many animals. I don't know how much, what the threshold is for a negative impact. So there is some work being done, I think by those two authors um, to try and determine this, uh, which I would be really interested to see. Um, I'm just, because, yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's just, yeah. I was just going to say, knowing the tech, not not necessarily technology and GPS tags, but even simple things like color color rings and you know camera traps on there. Yeah. I just think it will be so fascinating to know if you could, if you're lucky, if someone was lucky enough to be able to discover that these birds that are being released, what, obviously where they go, these birds are migrating, as you as you touched on, but. But yeah, whether they're enter when they're entering the breeding population, the longevity of how long they're lasting, it just yeah. there's so many things I think will be really fascinating. And yeah, I just wondered whether anyone was out there. But I, I actually I've just rejoined the Raptor Research Foundation. In fact, I've got the journal here, the latest one here in front of me. So I'm going to have to look back for that paper now. So I'll, I'll uh, I've yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out because yeah, that's that sort of research I think is would be yeah fa fascinating i just wondered if you you knew about it so okay have you any plans of going back out there visiting again what man so i've been lucky i have gosh i've been there so many times now i so i did the two years there through grant work and then i got hired by gopro to go out there and help them put gopros on the backs of eagles they have a little mini documentary from that out called eagle hunters in a new world Brilliant. just on youtube um i went with this american news show called 60 minutes um to help them do a, like a nightly news type program um i went with um a, a family that had adopted a child a kazakh child an american family and he wanted to go back and visit the culture his wow. his that he came from and um so i've is i've been really lucky uh since those trips they've all i've, I've had these these opportunities to go back and um, and get get paid for it which is great and i know i never thought that would actually happen well that's that's, that's brilliant what okay let's let's come back to america then what so you you touched on what one of your eagles um that you're flying at the moment what 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 birds have you got in your muse at the moment what what birds are, uh, are you you working with yeah so i've got this golden eagle who was um she was found with lead poisoning in wyoming big issue of course um yeah. as a first year bird um so she, we just had a she was slow to get started very very unfit of course very um ignorant about jackrabbits but we we had a she caught <laughs> she caught 37 jackrabbits this last season so super proud of her mm -hmm. um and next year we'll start soaring which is another important component that can take them some time for young eagles anyway to learn um and my other eagle is a Varose eagle. Also something I, I never, it was a very pleasant surprise. She is part of a captive breeding project 
to help safeguard the species here in the US, but wasn't interested in breeding. So the thought was, well, if she can fly and soar and hunt and exercise all her natural instincts, that might put her in a good mindset for breeding. And I've flown her a year now. Oh my gosh, one of my favorite birds. They're so cool, these Varose eagles. Very non-aggressive, sweet eagle, very loyal. She'll fall, I've had her follow me overhead for two hours on a soar, which it's crazy. Usually, especially with say a falcon, when they're overhead, you're like, you know, hurrying to try to flush something before maybe they get bored and fly off. But she's super loyal and really gorgeous stoops on jackrabbits. Um, so she caught 11 jackrabbits um, this last season. And it's, I'm, I really, it makes me, it inspires me to want to go watch them in the wild now. And I've seen what a captive bird can do. Those wild ones are going to be incredible. I'd love to go watch some wild rose eagles in Tanzania or South Africa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she'll I mean, go I'm, back into the breeding project next year. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So you've got the two birds. Obviously, and, and, and some people may be listening that follow you. You've also got a dog. Have you got one dog? Two, two dogs? I, I know I've seen this dog. I do. So you've got um, dogs that you work with with the birds as well. Um, so, I mean, we probably haven't got time to touch on that, but yeah, I should, I should just, I just wanted to mention that because if anyone wonders why the dogs crop up on social media and also, you know, who doesn't love dogs? I'm a, I'm a big dog person. So that's, uh, so that's great. What's, uh, what's next then, Lauren, what are you in your, obviously is, is it the close season now then the season, for the falconry season over where you are? Correct. Uh, I'll start again in September. It's similar to the UK. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, something I've been working on for a little while that um, the pandemic has thrown a wrench in is I would love to go fly a wedge-tailed eagle in Australia for rehabilitation. I just, there's very little about them in the literature and they're, I would love to see what they would do in a falconry situation and uh, so I, I'm trying to arrange staying in Australia for a season. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's funny you should mention that because I I've never met him, but there's a chap who who I've only just followed. I, kn I knew about him because he's we've got a mutual friend. Um, but there's a chap in Australia um, who monitors Wedgetail, Simon Cherryman, and I've just found mm. him on Instagram. So last night I was watching all his his videos and clips of him up trees and 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 what have you monitoring um yeah wedgetail eagles and what a bird what a bird um but yeah wow good well good good luck with that um definitely okay i always finish with the set well i don't know if i always finish with the same question sometimes i probably forget but i'm gonna have to ask you lauren because of what a cool falconry bird life you've led if you any advice one piece of advice it doesn't have to be one it can be two pieces of advice you give a budding falconer or raptor biologist what what would it be put you on the spot i would say all right so for the raptor biologist um apply for apply 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 for funding less people apply than you think and if you just keep applying for funding, you will get some. And apply for, gosh, 
so my anthropology, I'm an anthropologist. So my falconry, a lot of my falconry has been funded by anthropology grants. So there is money out there to be had if you can find something academic with what you're passionate about. And then the falconry side, I have had a mentor everywhere that I've flown an eagle and it's made all the difference. So just don't try to just figure stuff out on your own, <laughs> find some good mentors. <laughs> Brilliant. Great, great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Lauren. Well, uh, I think Ooh. we've. Uh, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, this has been fascinating. I've I've absolutely loved talking to you. And uh, yeah, uh, thank Ooh. you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been brilliant. That was great. Thank you for having me. Ooh.